0: You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church, Toronto. For more information, visit Sawgraceto.org. Well please open your Bibles to First Timothy, chapter 1. Today we're continuing our series through the letter um, that we know as First Timothy. Uh, This is the third sermon in this series, which is called Gospel Culture in God's Household. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 this afternoon. It was on April 17, 1521, that German reformer Martin Luther appeared before uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Charles V, along with various high-ranking officials Uh, uh, representing the Catholic Church. For those history buffs out there, I'm talking about the Diet of Worms. Not the Diet of Worms, where people were eating worms, but a diet, which is a political assembly, uh, in the German city called Worms. And it was there, at the Diet of Worms, where Martin Luther would deliver one of the most famous speeches recorded in Western history. It had been about four years since Martin Luther had first nailed his 95 theses on the door of the cathedral church in the city of Wittenberg, Germany, uh, which was an act that sparked Luther's campaign to reform the Catholic church with respect to various areas of doctrine. The question that was put before Luther at the Diet of Worms was whether he was willing to recant his writings. There was a a stack of 25 of his books there um, and those titles were read to him one by one and he was asked to renounce them. If he did, he would be shown leniency by the emperor. If he did not, he would be condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. Now Luther needed time to think and pray about this. When the... Diet reconvened the next day after he asked for some time to consider his response Luther provided a very thoughtful response he noted first of all that there was one category of his writing that was devotional in nature that even his theological opponents had approved and said was of much benefit Uh, he did admit that some of his writings specifically directed in criticism towards specific people were overly harsh and he apologized for their tone but in the end, he told the uh, officials there from the Holy Roman Empire and from the church that he would continue to stand by the substance of what he had written and he could not recant. Now, near the end of his speech, he said these famous words that have stuck with me for years. He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot And will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Now, I think most of us, when we read that quotation, can appreciate what he says about the Word of God that the Word of God found in the Holy Scriptures is our ultimate authority. And that if someone says that we need to renounce something that is based on the writings and teachings of the scriptures, our conscience is bound to reject those warnings. Our conscience is bound to the scriptures. But I wonder how much of us have noticed what Luther has said at the end where he says, it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. What does it mean to not be safe or right to go against conscience. We can understand why it would be not right to go against conscience, because our conscience is our moral compass. It affirms us when we are going in the right moral direction, and it burdens us, it guilts us when we have acted against our conscience. So when we go against conscience, we assume that our conscience, assuming that our conscience has been calibrated by God's word, we know that we're doing something Wrong. We're doing something that's not right. But, but the question here is, why does Luther say that it's not safe? It's not safe to go against conscience. He's not just saying that going against conscience is wrong. He says that going against conscience is dangerous. He's saying that when you believe that something is wrong, but you do it anyways, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. It is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. That's a big part of what today's text is all about. It's about the dangers of doing what you know you shouldn't. It's about how going against conscience doesn't just lead to immoral actions. It imperils your soul. Violating our conscience isn't just something we do. It's something that does something to us. So let's read these 3 verses at the end of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 to 20. This is the holy authoritative inerrant inspired word of the Lord. This charge I entrust to you Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The title of this sermon is A Good Conscience. A Good Conscience. My aim today is to show you simply that the good fight requires a good conscience. The good fight requires a good conscience. We're going to break down our text today into three points. First, watch your doctrine. Second, watch your conscience. And third, watch your people. We must watch our doctrine, our conscience, and our people. First, watch your doctrine. Verse 18 begins with these words. They say, this charge... I entrust to you. What's Paul talking about? Well, he's referring to a charge that he gave to Timothy, a charge meaning a, an authoritative instruction, a command, uh, which he gave to Timothy in verse 3, where he said, um, I, I, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, I remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine." Paul was concerned about false teaching that was spreading in the church in Ephesus. And his instruction to Timothy as he writes this, this letter to his child in the faith begins with the instruction to stop these certain persons from teaching what is false. What verse 18 does then is it picks up on that charge when it says, this charge I entrust to you. And that really shows us that the entirety of 1 Timothy chapter one is concerned about the same thing. It begins with a charge, it ends with a charge, and that charge is to protect and to preserve sound doctrine. Along the way, Paul has revealed which which doctrine is at stake. It's the doctrine of the gospel. In verse 7, he says that these certain persons desire to be teachers of the law. Now, by the law, he means the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, Um, he's saying certain people want to be teachers of the law. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. In fact, in verse 8, he says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. But these men, these certain persons, were not using it lawfully. They were teaching that the law continues to be, even after Christ has come and fulfilled the law, the law continues to be the center of religious life. And that the role of Christians is to devote themselves to the study and application of, of the law so that they would conform their lives to that external standard by the strength of their own will. In response, Paul says in verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, that is, those who are made just, who are justified through faith in Christ. Instead, the law is for the lawless and the disobedient. Paul's saying that Jesus has changed the function of the law when it comes to Christians, when it comes to those who are made just, justified by faith in Him. The law, my friends, is no longer for us. We still receive much benefit from it, direction from it, but its primary purpose is to restrain and to reveal the sins of those who are not yet united to Christ by faith. Then, in verse 11, Paul reveals what has taken the place of the law for the Christian it's the gospel. He says that the the law is now to be read and interpreted in accordance with the gospel. The gospel has completely transformed the way in which we read and apply the law and has replaced the law as the primary focus of our relationship with God. The gospel, not the law, lies at the heart of the Christian life and at the heart of the Christian church. That led Paul to reflect on the gospel's impact on his life in verses 12 to 17. These wonderful verses we saw last Sunday. He remembers who he was. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent of the church. He made it his aim to destroy Christianity, not just through arguments, but through violence. And then he remembers who he now is in Christ, a man who has received faith And love through the overflow of God's grace to him. Paul is a transformed man. He's been transformed by the gospel. He calls himself the foremost of sinners, literally, the first, the first of sinners, the first place sinner in the competition for who's the worst. He's the worst, he says. No one's sins are blacker than his. If anyone deserves to be rejected by God and punished, by God, he's saying, it's me. But instead of receiving punishment, he's received mercy, because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, that leads to our text today, beginning in verse 18. This charge, Paul says to Timothy, this charge to exhort certain persons not to teach any different doctrine for the sake of preserving and protecting the gospel, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. What an incredible responsibility. Paul is entrusting something that is intensely personal to him. He's entrusting the very gospel that turned him from a man full of hatred and transformed into a man full of love, a man who was a blasphemer, who spoke against Christ, into a man who worshiped Christ by his words and by his life. And now Paul's saying that he entrusts the protection of the gospel to Timothy. He calls Timothy my child, just as he did in verse two. He calls him my true child in the faith. That's partly because Paul was his spiritual father, but it's also because Timothy was a young man. He was a young man. We know that because in chapter four, verse 12, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was a young man. And as any young man He struggled with the sins of young men. One of those sins was fear. The fear of man, the fear of the unknown, the fear of not having everything in his control. And we know that because of Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter one, verse seven, where he gently reminds him, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy was an exceptionally gifted young man. But he struggled, just like so many of us, with fear and self-doubt. We could call him timid Timothy. And yet Paul's passing the baton, the baton of guarding sound doctrine, the, the, the baton of proclaiming and protecting the gospel to timid Timothy. And now that baton, through the centuries, has been passed down to local churches like ours there are no more apostles like the Apostle Paul. There are only churches with pastors and with members who are entrusted with the charge to protect and to proclaim the gospel. Now, Paul knew that this was no easy task, not for his young protege, Timothy, and not for churches like ours, which is why he calls this waging the good warfare in verse 18. Other translations call it fighting the good fight. You know, Paul isn't naive. He knows that this isn't just a struggle for sound doctrine. He knows that it's a war. And as a war, it needs to be fought like a war. Kevin DeYoung says this in his book on the Heidelberg Catechism. He says, the only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. Now that's a powerful word. I want to print that on a poster and print it and put it up on my in my house and in our church. The only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. We see this all over the place in local churches, which have either gone liberal or closed their doors. We see it in entire denominations that have abandoned the orthodox teaching of the gospel. We see it in universities that were once committed to training men for ministry, but are now committed to tearing those ministries down. You know, I'm a a, a McMaster alumnus. Went to McMaster University 2004 to 2008. You know what the motto of McMaster University is? It's taken from Colossians 1 verse 17. In Christ, all things hold together. We see this Drift in entire countries that once burned with zeal for the gospel but are now spiritual wastelands. We see it in the very churches that Paul himself planted. I mean, the majority of the New Testament was written because Paul had to address doctrinal drift, doctrinal error in the very churches that he planted. These early believers, these first churches, drank from the pure streams of apostolic teaching. But that didn't stop them from losing what they had found. The only thing more difficult than finding the truth is not losing it. My friends, there is a war raging around us, and there is a war raging inside us because we have three enemies against truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Enemies without and enemies within. And each is hell-bent on corrupting And destroying truth. This is a war that has always existed. This isn't something new. It's not something unique to our generation or to Paul's generation. If you look at church history, the history of the church is a history of the struggle for truth. From the early councils about the Trinity and the the nature of Christ, to the medieval discussions about God's sovereignty and the problem of evil to the reformers' struggle for the doctrine of justification and the five solas, to the 20th century battle between the fundamentalists and the modernists over the doctrine of scripture, to our present battle over the issues of marriage, gender, and sexuality. The church is in a war for truth. Always has been, always will be. As Philip Ryken puts it in his commentary, the people of God have never been able simply to rest in the faith. They have always had to fight for it. Now Paul knew that this was a supernatural war that required supernatural resources, which is why Paul mentions in verse 18 these prophecies previously made about Timothy. Now We may attempt all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics to try to get around what this is saying. It's pretty clear that Paul is saying that prophecies have been made about Timothy, and that it is by them, by those prophecies, that he may wage the good warfare. It appears that several prophecies were made about Timothy, prophecies that not only confirmed his giftings for ministry, but strengthened his giftings for ministry. In chapter 4, verse 14, as an example, Paul writes, do not neglect the gift you have, And the gift in the context is the gift of teaching and preaching the scriptures, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy was given a gift of preaching at his ordination. When the council of elders laid their hands on him and commissioned him to be a pastor of the church in Ephesus, he was given a gift of preaching. Now Paul's saying that as Timothy fights the good fight for the sake of the gospel, he's to remember, he's to remember those prophetic words spoken over him, the words that he would serve the Lord as a guardian and herald of the gospel. Now if Timothy needed prophetic words, how much more do we? How much more do we need the powerful, timely reminders of God's goodness and grace that we receive through the gift of prophecy. Now the gift of prophecy is not given to us so that we can feel good about ourselves, as so we can boast about how much more charismatic we are than others, or we, so that we can have a supernatural experience. The gift of prophecy is given to strengthen our faith so that we can wage the good warfare well. Now some people fear that prophecy will supplant the authority of scripture, and that can certainly happen when the gift is abused. But what scripture tells us is that the gift is not meant to supplant the authority of scripture, it's meant to serve the authority of scripture. It equips us and empowers us so that we will defend and proclaim sound doctrine with the strength that God supplies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that we are to earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. If anything is gonna make us desire the gift of prophecy more earnestly, more desperately, with more need, it is that it will help us to guard and to proclaim the sound doctrine of the gospel. I often think, just on a personal note, of the prophetic words that I received before I was a pastor. I think about what our executive director, Mark Prater, spoke over me in January 2016. Before the... Opportunity to become the senior pastor of our church ever arose before it was on my radar, before it was on the radar of our board and our church. He spoke words that imparted faith to me so that when the opportunity came, I had peace. Peace to leave my law practice, peace to leave that behind and to venture into the really vastly unknown and somewhat scary world of pastoring. My friends, the gift of prophecy is meant to serve the gospel. It's meant to hold up the pure doctrine of, that's revealed in the scriptures. Let us earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. We must watch our doctrine. But what are we to watch for? We obviously need to watch out for false teaching, but is there anything else that poses a threat to sound doctrine? And that leads to Paul's next point. And our second point, watch your conscience. Watch your conscience. After exhorting Timothy to wage the good warfare of truth, Paul says this in verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. What Paul's doing is he's training Timothy to fight the good fight, to wage the warfare well. He says it begins with remembering these prophetic words spoken over you, but it also continues to holding faith and a good conscience. Now, we know what holding faith means. We're not going to spend much time here. It means responding with belief and trust to the sound doctrine of, uh, that's revealed in the scriptures, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about holding on to the gospel with the God-given hands of faith and not letting go. But what does it mean to hold a good conscience? Hold faith, hold a good conscience. Now, we're gonna be spending quite a bit of time thinking about the conscience, and I wanna begin by showing you that for Paul, the conscience wasn't a minor thing. It wasn't secondary or tertiary. It was a central thing to his understanding of what a healthy relationship with God looks like. In Acts 23, verse one, as Paul's speaking before the Sanhedrin, he declares, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 24, verse 16, before the governor Felix he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Then in First Timothy alone, we have four references to the conscience, one of which we've already seen in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and the sincere faith, one we see here in verse 19, one we see in chapter three, and one we see in chapter four. Now, Philip Towner defines the good conscience as follows. He says, the good conscience is the organ of decision by which the Christian may move from knowledge of the faith and sound teaching to appropriate conduct. Now, that's a scholar's definition. Um, when we think about what helps us move from right belief to right action, it's the conscience, The conscience is the filter that enables us to discern how our beliefs translate into action. It's what enables us to move from knowing what's right to doing what's right. And in the corporate life of the church, the conscience is what enables us to move from gospel doctrine to gospel culture. The conscience is what you could call our moral compass. It affirms us when we're going in the right moral direction. You you did something right there when you helped that lady who spilled her groceries on the floor because her bags were too heavy. Or, and, it, and it helps us to know when we veered off course, when we pass by that person in need and turn a blind eye, it gives us guilt. It reminds us that we have not done what is right. One of the maze ways it does this is it's through our emotions. One Gospel Coalition writer put it this way. He says, when we conform to the values of our conscience, we feel a sense of pleasure or relief. But when we violate the values of our conscience, it induces anguish or guilt. Now the thing about the conscience is it can be either healthy or it can be sick. Paul talks in verse 19 about a good conscience because obviously the conscience can be bad. Or to put it in other language that Paul uses elsewhere, the conscience can be clear, but it can also be seared. It can be cleared or it can be seared. That's how he would describe the consciences of the false teachers in chapter four. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These false teachers who have seared consciences are now speaking lies that are leading others to depart from the faith. Now these verses show us what's at stake when it comes to the conscience. The conscience isn't just about feeling good about the decisions that you make. It's not just about your morality. It's about your faith. There is an undeniable connection between a good conscience and a sincere faith. Aside from this example in chapter four about these false teachers, there are three other connections in 1 Timothy alone. Uh, We already saw that in chapter one, verse five, love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Conscience and faith coupled together. Verse 19, which we're looking at now, holding faith and a good conscience, they're coupled together. And then chapter three, verse nine, talking about the qualifications of deacons, it says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear Conscience. These verses unmistakably show us that we cannot separate our morals from our beliefs. Most of us know that what we believe affects what we do. But not many of us recognize that what we do affects what we believe. Kent Hughes puts it this way when morals slip, doctrine ebbs, and the fight is soon lost. Conscious disobedience will kill our spiritual life. And so my question to you, the scripture's question to you today is, are you engaged in conscious disobedience? It could be when you open up your laptop with lustful intent, and your conscience is telling you, don't do it. This is gonna be bad. It's gonna be harmful to you. You're gonna feel guilty but you ignore that conscience speaking to you. You say, I don't care. I'm doing it anyways. It could be in the midst of a argument with your loved one and those poisonous words start to frame in your mind. And one part of you saying, don't say it. It's not worth it. But you say it anyways. It could be when you've sinned against someone and you know you need to make things right, but you refuse to approach that person because you're too proud or you're too angry, you violate your conscience. If that is you, then take care, because violating your conscience isn't just something you do, it's something that does something to you. It's not right to go against conscience, nor is it safe, because over time, your conscience will be so seared that you will no longer know what is right and what is wrong. I wonder, have you ever asked the question, how do people go from loving what is good to hating it, to hating what is evil, to loving it? It's the seared conscience. It's the seared conscience. The seared conscience is what leads people to look at the moral standards in the Bible and say, that's not right. That can't be what God really requires of us. The seared conscience is what leads people to happily do what's wrong, to celebrate what is immoral. The seared conscience is what leads people who once professed faith in Christ to walk away from it all and wonder, how did I ever believe about sin and about a savior? Friends, we must hold faith in a good conscience, not one or the other, but both, because they are inseparable. You lose your faith, you're going to lose your conscience. But if you lose your conscience, you're also going to lose your faith. Now that doesn't mean that we're never going to act against our conscience. That would be the perfect person. We will act against our conscience because we are all sinners. None of us are able to abide by our conscience all the time. The question for us today isn't, will you go against your conscience? The answer is absolutely yes. Yes. But when we do, the question is, what are you going to do about it? When you feel the burden of guilt, when you feel the conviction of sin, when you sense that instinct that tells you that you did something wrong, will you ignore it? Will you turn a blind eye to it? Will you pretend that it never happened? Or will you confront it, confess it, and forsake it? If you do, then Christ stands ready to receive you. His blood is more than sufficient to pay the debt of your sin. In fact, it is more than sufficient to heal you of your seared conscience. In Christ, there is grace for sinners, even the worst of sinners. There is grace that will overflow to you with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus if you would but repent and believe. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to live by your conscience all the time, but you need to be willing to leave your sin behind for the joys of knowing Christ. And so if today you are acting against your conscience, today you are sinning in ways that you know are wrong, but that doesn't make you willing to abandon your sin, my exhortation to you, God's word to you from his holy word is to turn away from your sin and turn towards your only savior, Jesus Christ, he will forgive you and he will heal you. The remainder of our text is about what happens when people who are fighting the good fight fail to hold on to a good conscience. And that leads to our third point, watch your people. In verse 20, Paul mentions two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander. The fact that he names them implies that they were well known to the believers in Ephesus, they, uh, people knew who Paul was talking about when he said their names, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They were likely part of the group of leaders who wanted to be teachers of the law. They're prominent, influential members of the church. But here in verse 20, Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, it's unmistakable that this is a, ref- a reference to church discipline. Church discipline is the biblical practice of declaring that someone who says they're a Christian can no longer be part of the local church. Their profession of faith is no longer deemed credible because of deviance from the core doctrines of the faith or through unrepentant sin. And the result is that the believing community can no longer relate to them as one of its members. We know Paul's talking about church discipline because of the language that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 which is the longest, most extensive, descriptive treatment of church discipline in the New Testament. There in chapter 5, verse 5, Paul writes, um, You are to deliver this man, this unrepentant sinner, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Both of the same components. Deliver the man to Satan for redemptive purposes, for salvation, so that they may learn not to Now the question we need to ask is, what happened? What happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander? These two leading influential teachers in the church. What could have gone so wrong that these two members could be cast out of the church and exposed deliberately by Paul to a greater degree of Satan's influence? Let's not miss that that's what church discipline does. There is spiritual protection from the forces of evil within the local church. Where Christ's word is proclaimed, where Christ's people pray, and where Christ's spirit reigns. The kingdom of God is all around us, and yet it has come with particular force in the local church Now, if the disciplined member truly belongs to Christ, they won't be lost. They won't be irrecoverably influenced by Satan. God will sovereignly work all things for their good, including church discipline. But that doesn't change the fact that they will experience more darkness out there than in here. Now, you may ask, why would God require that? How does that make sense? How. how, Why would he ever take a spiritually weak person and take them out of the only place where they could receive spiritual influence? Is it to punish? No. It's to rescue. It's to rescue. The purpose of discipline is redemptive, not punitive. It's not just about separation. It's about reconciliation, both to God and to God's people. Church discipline is the church's way of saying, friend, you are not right with God. And you don't see it, but you need to see it. And the only way that we can help you to see it is by showing you that you are not right with God's people. Philip Towner puts it in this memorable way. For some, it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantages on board ship ship. Church discipline is an expression not of hatred, not of bitterness, not of anger, but of love. It's, it's, it's an expression of love by the church for the disciplined member. And it's done with the hope and prayer that the darkness would turn them back to the light. You know, if someone's living in the darkness of sin, we're not doing them any favors by letting them pretend that they're in the light. They need to know that they're lost and that their souls are in danger in the strongest possible terms. And if the disciplined member is truly born again, if they've truly been given the gift of new life through faith in Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwells within them, they won't stay in the darkness for long. As Pastor Tim likes to say, sheep don't like playing in the mud, pigs do, they'll roll around in the mud till they die. But sooner or later, the sheep will realize they're not having much fun in the mud. And they return to the shepherd of their souls and receive cleansing by the blood of the lamb. So what happened to dear Hymenaeus and Alexander that they should fall so far from grace? Well, Paul tells us in three words in verse 19. By rejecting this. Rejecting What? By rejecting this. And notice it doesn't say these, plural. It says this, singular. Paul's not talking about the rejection of faith and a good conscience, plural. He's talking about the rejection of a good conscience, singular. In other words, the downfall of these two men didn't begin with doctrine. It began with the conscience. It eventually becomes doctrinal error, Paul will write about Hymenaeus in Second Timothy and say that he swore from the truth, and he's teaching everybody that the resur- resurrection has already happened. But that started with conscious disobedience. It started with sin- sinning against the conscience, acting against conscience, ignoring the moral compass with reckless abandon, even though they knew what they were doing was wrong. And that is why, my friends, my dear church, we must watch out for one another. We can't afford to let moral decay fester and spread until those around us become a shell of the Christian life. That is what a seared conscience does. We need to speak up. We need to remember that wise and powerful proverb that faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you're a friend, you're going to be wounding those you love by your correction, by your rebuke, done lovingly. Love requires wounding. Love requires reproof. Watching out for one another is essential for gospel culture. And the same goes for letting others watch out for you. I mean, most of us want to watch out for others, but do we really want people to watch out for us? Do we want our lives to be an open book, where we stand in vulnerability for others to look in and say, Josh, you're straying. Josh, you're acting against your conscience. This is dangerous for your soul. We need that because all of us are prone to wander. All of us struggle with sin. The risk of a seared conscience is a real one for every one of us, which is why we need one another. Now, these words from Hebrews 3 are so apt for our message today. The apostle says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. How do you you take care? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My friends, we need one another. Not because God is powerless Because of some impotence in God's sovereign care for us, but because God has ordained it to be so. God has chosen in His providence for us to need one another to flourish in our faith, to rescue us from sin, and to deliver us from darkness. Friends, we need one another. This is what we call biblical fellowship, where we're not just meeting over mini sandwiches and juice. But we are exhorting one another every day as long as it is called today. And this is essential for gospel culture. Biblical fellowship begins with our small groups, which we call tags, truth application groups. Our tags aren't just another social gathering to add to your over busy schedules. Because if we face it, we're all too busy. We all have too many things going on during the week. We, the last thing we want to do is add something to an already overburdened schedule. Well, tags aren't just another social gathering. They are a means of grace to help you keep your conscience from being seared. When we get together in our tags, we're not just doing Bible studies and talking about truth in the abstract out there. We're talking about the condition of our souls in here. Now, I thank God that many of you are committed to tags, to small groups, but I'm also aware that many of you are either irregular participants or not part of a tag at all. And my appeal to you as your pastor is to not let this continue. We as a church leadership could care less about numbers, about how many people we have in our small groups across the GTA. We don't keep track of that. Our concern is for your souls it's about watching our lives and our doctrine for ourselves and for one another. Biblical fellowship starts with our tags, but it doesn't end there. We want it to characterize our entire church culture because biblical fellowship shouldn't be something we can compartmentalize into certain meetings that we do at certain times of the week. Biblical fellowship should saturate everything that we do. You know, in a few minutes we're going to end our service. Some of you are going to turn to your neighbors or go find your friends and engage in some pleasant chit chat before heading home. Others will head downstairs for our soup Sunday where you'll laugh and talk and joke and enjoy one another's company. Those are all good and beautiful, commendable things, but they're not fellowship. There's another word for it socializing. Fellowship is not socializing. We need fellowship. We can socialize with one another in so many different contexts, in our homes, out at a restaurant, but here at the church, in the context of the local church, we have a unique opportunity for fellowship. And so when this service ends, I challenge you not only to go to your friends and chit-chat as if this service had never happened, as if this message had not been preached. I encourage you to go and to exhort one another, to care for one another's souls because the reality is there are people around you who are acting against their conscience, who are sinning without repentance and that is neither safe nor right. When we come to church, we don't just need another place to hang out. We need a place to give and to receive exhortation. Now you may say, well, it's kind of awkward to do that with people you barely know and that's true. You don't start a relationship with exhortation. It takes time, it takes presence, it takes perseverance. And so, if you find yourself saying, Hey, nobody knows me well enough to speak into my life, well, I don't know anybody well enough to check on the condition of their soul, my challenge to you is well, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to wait for people to approach you? Are you going to move towards others to build the kinds of relationships where biblical fellowship is the norm rather than the exception? Today, as you ask yourself, have I been secretly sinning against my conscience? Have I been ignoring my guilt in conscious disobedience? Then seek help. Cry out to God in prayer. Cry out to God's people in fellowship. You don't have to fight alone. It's not safe to fight alone. There are people in this church who are willing to help you. And if you don't know who to talk to, come talk to one of the pastors. We want to help you, not judge you. Because all of us struggle. All of us sin. All of us need the grace of God to hold faith and a good conscience. And by God's overflowing grace, let us wage the warfare well. For truth and for love, as we help each other hold faith and a good conscience, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Father, in a sermon like this, a text like this, reminding us of the darkness and deceitfulness of sin, all of us need to cry out to you for mercy. Thank you for providing us with this church where we have an opportunity to, to seek and to receive help in our moments of need, in our moments of struggle, in our moments of temptation. I pray that we would take advantage of this for one another and that together we would love one another in such a way, with such a force and depth that we would bear witness to a watching world. For it is by our love for one another that the world may know that we are the disciples of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.